Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, July 25th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebig with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro, and this week we're going to be covering speckled dace, specifically those in the Long Valley. We're very pleased to welcome our guests. We've got Kaylin Hager, who's a fish and wildlife biologist with our Reno, Nevada office. And we've got Rosa Cox, who's a native fish biologist with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. So welcome, you two. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Guy, I don't think we've done a day species before, have we? No, we haven't. We've done some other minnows, some other small sort of non-game fish. And dace always kind of get me there. It's a name sort of similar to like the chubs and the basses, where it doesn't necessarily mean anything in particular, but it's one of a fish from any number of genre. But they're generally, you know, these smaller, freshwater, sort of cyprinid, leucicid type species. But I haven't had the chance to actually interact with a ton of dace, so I'm really excited to learn more about this species. So I guess, yeah, I'm kind of curious how this species, the speckled dace and the variety we're talking about today, how do those fit in specifically with dace? Yeah, this species, Renichthys osculus, is in the genus Renichthys, which I always have a hard time pronouncing. And these are the riffle daces. There are eight species currently represented in North America, including one extinct species. Riffle daces are widespread throughout North America, but the speckled dace is actually one of the most widespread dispersant fish on the in Western North America, Long Valley speckled dace in particular as a subspecies that has not yet been recognized as a subspecies. So right now, um, Long Valley speckled dace is part of this larger distributed species that actually ranges from British Columbia all the way down to Mexico. With the onset of genetics, we have really started paying attention to smaller populations. And the population we're talking about today, this is isolated to a very small portion of the Eastern Sierra, just north of the Owens Valley. And we're really just talking about this fish that exists in one small basin and has been isolated from other populations for a significant amount of time. So, Kaylin, if we were to head to the place where the Long Valley speckled dace lives, what kind of landscape would we see? And also, if we had this fish in hand, could you describe kind of what we'd, what we'd see? What does it look like? Uh, yeah, so currently, Long Valley speckled dace exists at the Whitmore Marsh. So it's mostly covered in three-square bulrush, and it's pretty heavily encroached there, but you still have a nice channel of water that outflows into two distinct pools. We're... We recently just did some surveys. The water coming out is about 89 degrees from the springhead, and the gradient stays pretty warm throughout it. Long Valley's speckled dace are 80 to 110 millimeters, which is about three to four inches. It's kind of a dusky olive color, and they get their name because they have black splotches and spots throughout its whole entire body, and they will have reddish tint to their fins, and the males will have kind of reddish lips as well. So it's kind of distinguishing for for that species. And I've got a picture here in my screenshot, but it kind of has like a downturn frown face. Yeah, very cartoonish face as well. Yeah, so we actually only currently have two populations of Longstock Valley speckled dace in the world. One is at Whitmer Marsh, which Kaylin already mentioned. And the other is at a very, very small managed refuge pond at a research station down in Bishop. So the pond is only 40 by 40 feet. It supports a population of probably three to 4,000 fish. 
And that is our source population for any kind of management efforts we do or restoration efforts we do. Real quick, what temperature did you say that this spring was coming out at? 89 degrees Fahrenheit. That sounds very warm. What's, is that near the thermal kind of tolerance for this species? Because that seems hot. So the fish don't actually persist in the upper part of the marsh. They, they really do much better in the lower parts of the marsh where we, we get much more cooling from environmental influxes. So we, like, we have trapped throughout that marsh in the past, and they will actually be found in the upper reaches of the marsh where it is very warm but they don't seem to spend a lot of time there. So they seem to be foraging specifically there and then not necessarily reproducing there or even overnighting there, right? So they'll be moving in and out of the the hot water in that particular habitat. Could one of you kind of describe the geological history and like hydrology of the larger area? I mean, this is a very specific spot that we've talked about, but just kind of that, you know, where was this fish historically? How did the geology and just water movement in this landscape, I know it's a desert habitat, but how did that shape kind of where these fish were and are today? Because desert fish are in arid climates, we're looking at really generally fairly isolated bodies of water in the current age. And as such, you get high levels of endemism in these habitats because they, you know, you can kind of think of them as similar to the Galapagos Islands. They're islands of water within a very dry system, um, a dry area. So you get, it turns out fish kind of do need water <laughs> to move around. Um, that might be a shock to you and your listeners now. <laughs> but uh, if you get these isolated bodies of water in these desert environments, you do get high levels of speciation and separation from um, each other. So that's really cool. What's interesting about speckled dace in particular in this area is that recent genetic data indicates that there has been actually more recent hybridization between all these populations in the Death Valley system than with our other desert fish like pupfish and tuicha. And part of that might be that these are just cool stream-dwelling desert fish, and they actually are capable of inhabiting headwater streams that, say, our pupfish don't inhabit. And so they seem to have actually moved around surprisingly more often than you'd expect for these desert arid regions. Long Valley speckled dace actually seem to be much more isolated and much more differentiated from the rest of the speckled dace in the Death Valley system, which we're talking about Amargosa speckled dace, Owens Valley speckled dace, um, Ash Meadows speckled dace, Oasis Valley speckled dace. All of those fish seem much more related to each other, even though they're in spread out over a much larger geographic range than, say, the Long Valley Dace from the Owens Valley Speckled Dace. So Long Valley is actually just perched above the Owens Valley. It's like 30 miles away from Bishop, California. Um, and in Bishop, we have the Owens Speckled Dace. And yet in Long Valley, we're looking at a much more differentiated population of speckled dace than, say, Owens Valley Speckled Dace are from the actually Death Valley speckled dace where they're separated by a distance of more than 200, 300 miles. Oh, dang. So out of curiosity, how much time are we talking about these fish being separated from one another and kind of evolving on their own sort of trajectory? Long Valley is formed by a volcanic eruption 760,000 years ago, which is really fascinating because it created this big caldera that is relatively isolated from other valleys in the region. So I've seen people argue that Long Valley speckled dace could have been isolated 
from Owen Speckled Day as early as 760,000 years ago as a result of the volcanic eruption. But I've also heard arguments that, you know, it really actually probably happened much more recently due to increasing basically steepness in the connecting waterways, right? So as erosion out of Long Valley happened, or as Long Valley drained and erosion occurred in the river drainage, we got an increasing gradient that might have prohibited colonization of Owens Valley speckled days back up into Long Valley. And as such, that would have been a much more recent process than 760,000 years ago. The Long Valley speckled days hasn't formally been described yet. It has been recognized as an individual population because there's not any differentiated, delineated species that can result in issues with management, right? It seems like it is a pretty plastic species as well. Depending on the habitat where it is, you get all these different forms, and that seems to muddy the water even more in figuring out, you know, what is the same species, what's a different species, what's a subspecies within it, and what's just a different form within that same subspecies. Right. And you know why? That actually really begs the question, why do we care what a species is and how it's delineated? And really, from my perspective, we really truly care because species are the unit at which we manage, right? So conservation efforts really matter for fish when we can delineate what a species is and where it's, you know, geographically isolated. So with formal recognition will come like additional ability and, and resources for conservation and management. You brought up the importance of getting these populations to the species level for management, but I've talked to a lot of managers and one of the things that they think is really important is being able to actually look at a fish and distinguish it from another, you know, species. And if, if you can't tell sort of by looking at it and the fish can reproduce with one another, it's hard to justify in their opinion that such a thing is a different species. So I'm curious, are there physical differences between these populations that can kind of contribute to your justification in calling them different species or subspecies? That's a good question. Speckled days kind of have identity crisis. In 1896, they were thought to be 10. Then in 1974, they said it was one. And then 2002, they said one was seven subspecies and countless papers. By the time I finished the sentence, there's probably already one published saying that something different. But one thing has remained true is that Long Valley speckled days, since they could do genetic analysis, has been considered to be distinct enough than the rest of them. Physically, like morphometrically, difference is there, it's very minute. Like you have a different lateral, more lateral line scales and less lateral line pores. But if you were to handle it, just the average person handling it, it'd be very hard to discern between the two. But genetically, they vary higher than any other speckled days. Yeah. And that, I mean, diversity's importance to resilience over time. And we're talking about a landscape in an area of the U.S. where water is a scarce resource. There's a lot of folks that need to use it for different things. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what has kind of maybe threatened these fish. Is it water only? Is it other species that have come in? Is it land use? Yeah, so typical to a lot of desert systems, the two big risks for these fish are loss of habitat by diversion and loss of habitat due to introduction of non-native predatory fish. Really, the, the big one is predators. You know, these fish evolved without any native predators. And so with the introduction of non-natives in the early 20th century, we're looking at a really incredible reduction in range that went pretty quickly. 
And unfortunately, that actually creates some complications with finding refuge habitat for them for management. You know, we are actively searching for isolated ponds, isolated streams, isolated even hot springs that we can maybe translocate them into and establish new populations. But unfortunately, Long Valley is just such a small geographic area to begin with that those opportunities don't really exist within its native drainage. So the the major kind of management techniques here, you've got the translocation piece, and then what about like habitat restoration? Is that a big player in this the species or? Yeah, so the, all the, a lot of the water in Long Valley is actually very connected to the main drainage, the main Owens River system, and so it makes it very impossible to like to do restoration such that we could introduce Long Valley speckled bass would involve eradicating fish that we don't have the ability to eradicate. But I do think that illustrates just how limited our options are in the basin. There are a few more options outside of basin, but yeah, and I think, you know, the restoration process really does involve just collaborating with agencies, collaborating with partners, you know, dealing with, like U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been really critical in helping try to restore habitat and find alternative habitats. Yeah, (laughs) options are limited. Are there things people can do to help conserve these fish or things they can think about with their own water use or consumer choices, anything like that? Yeah, so I was thinking about this um, a lot recently, and I really do think that the, the main thing that people can do to contribute to conserving native desert fish in general, it's just simply not releasing pet fish into waters. You know, we deal with introductions of goldfish a lot. You know, people spend time out here in the beautiful outdoors and they see a beautiful pond that looks perfect for their pet fish. And when they move, it just makes sense to release it and let it be free. And that is that actually poses significant problems for desert fish conservation in general. And, you know, we've had multiple of non-natives simply because people were releasing aquarium fish into the waters. And that applies to you know, turtles. I'm sure people are familiar with red-eared sliders in the West. They're non-native and invasive. Um, And I think, yeah, I think that's honestly the easiest step that people can take is educate folks on not releasing pet fish. There are a lot of other options for getting rid of unwanted pets that include donating to pet stores or, you know, finding someone else to take care of them or, you know, humanely euthanizing them. That's interesting you mentioned those two because even up here in Anchorage, we had goldfish and sliders. Yeah. And I think that's pretty, I mean, goldfish is something we want to cover in the future here, but that's a pretty, a pretty big issue, I think. Yeah. I really like desert fish. They seem just, yeah, they're, they're very cool. And you just wouldn't expect to, I, I guess, just look at these habitats and know that there's so much diversity out there. But do you think there's any possibility of kind of interesting the public in these desert fishes that are native versus some of the fish that have been introduced? I mean, I know there's a whole microfishing community coming online and I don't know. I just think they're, they're very cool and people just may not know too much about them. Yeah. I, I recently just discovered microfishing. That's, I saw someone catch a speckled base with like a size 16 hook versus even smaller. It was really impressive. I didn't know you could do that. So that might be something I might dabble into and advocate for. It's hard to get advocacy groups for fish like these because when you have water that needs to go to these fish, but water that 
needs to be used for other issues, they could be seen as a competing interest. As Mark Twain said, in the American West, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. So you have to really walk that line between of uh, conservation and recovery and also being able to fulfill the utilitarian need for that water. Yeah. But the advocacy of these fish should be supported on just how unique they are and they evolved to fill these niches that other species didn't. So they're very unique and very rare and they're there for a reason and they could be a keystone indicator for that ecosystem. I would love to see fish heads out there get really invested in these cryptic desert species. But I think a lot of it's just going to come down to how much we can sell the importance of native fish to ecosystem services and ecosystems in general. And I do want to mention that we have several indigenous tribes out here that are very invested in native species, especially pupfish. But speckled dace are one of those taxa that they also are pay a lot of attention to. And I think that increasing local awareness of all of our endemic species in general could create a group of people who are excited about advocacy. But, you know, I really don't know about the logistics of creating a tourism industry <laughs> on fish that can fit in the palm of my hand. And well, are cryptic fish tourism. <laughs> a lot of the people what? who would be interested, I think they listen to this podcast. So maybe oh, this good. will help spark that. <laughs> if someone was going to try and make a trip out there and wanted to target some of these dace, what kind of equipment would they use? You mentioned those really small 16 and higher hooks. But what kind of, you know, bait might you throw on there that's the most convincing? What are these things eaten in the wild? That's a great question. Speckled dace um, are relatively omnivorous. Um, you know, for our native fish, they they are not piscivorous. They are targeting bugs, but they actually also eat plant matter and algae. I don't know how you fish for something with algae, but... <laughs> I bet guy could. I bet you could catch something. <laughs> yeah, so if yeah. you use your, your mayfly, a midge, right. or a caddisfly, you just gotta, I guess you've got to get a real small... The, the macroinvertebrate population was really, really, really healthy out where oh, we did nice. the surveys. But we caught the same fish three times. So if the macroinvertebrates are an indicator of the health of the overall population, then that is it's uh, encouraging. They're just very hard to get to in that uh, three-square bull rush. The majority of native fish are protected. So they're illegal to possess. And I think that actually goes for fishing for them as well. You can't fish for Owen's pupfish. They're fully protected. They're federally endangered. You can't fish for native to each other, although we have intragust to each other that you absolutely can fish for in the majority of their region um, because those aren't protected. So there are different populations that are variably protected. And, and you basically, if you're going to go fishing for something or even try to, to keep something, you really should be fully educated on its protections and how endangered they are. You guys, I've loved this conversation. I wish we'd had it a couple weeks ago. I would have definitely added Long Valley and Owens Basin to my California trip. I'm really regretting that I didn't now, but I've seen all kinds of cool stuff. You'll just have to come back. Yeah, yeah, one of these days. All right, we hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish, and those desert cryptic fishes need love too. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. 
We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.